Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron. It's a real thrill to be on all of these stations. These are the stations I grew up with. You are approaching nearly a year in the AG's office. What have you found most surprising about the job? You know, what surprises me the most is uh, how much time I spend with other attorneys general from across the country. There are 56 states and territories, and we meet an awful lot. Um, And I don't have to tell you, we don't always meet in Hartford, right? So uh, I have to be at meetings uh, in many places across the country because when we coordinate on a multi-state basis, we have to do it in person. It's very hard for 56 states and territories, particularly um, the attorneys general, to do it by conference call. So um, I have a big opioids meeting, for example, in Washington, D.C. next week. I think it's next week. Yeah, next week. Um, So I got to fly down for that uh, to talk about the opioid crisis and our, and our work uh, confronting the worst public health crisis of my lifetime. And so the most surprising thing is the amount of time I spend um, with my fellow AGs. I, I wasn't quite aware of how much time uh, that took. Often when there is an announcement about an investigation or legal action, it says Connecticut is leading this multi-state coalition. Is the state an outlier? Are we known for that? Or is that something that a lot of states do on, on various issues? Uh, I, I guess I would say we're outlier probably isn't the right word, but um, we have a reputation uh, among the states for punching well above our weight. And that's because of the legacy of attorneys general, Joe Lieberman, Dick Blumenthal, George Jepson, all giants in the AG community. And they set the bar pretty high for me. Um, And what people have come to expect from Connecticut is that the Attorney General and the Attorney General's office, despite being smaller than some offices, um, like New York or California or Massachusetts, uh, despite being smaller, we are a leadership state in um, many, many, many cases. For example, I'm on the National Executive Committee of the states on the opioid crisis. I'm personally leading the the major generic drug price-fixing case. We are in the lead on a number of privacy and data breach cases, uh, such as Equifax and many others. So Connecticut often finds itself uh, in the driver's seat. And Senator Blumenthal, when he was attorney general, um, was one of the leaders of the big tobacco case. You mentioned the opioid crisis. Connecticut has sued the maker of OxyContin, Stanford-based Purdue Pharma, yep. and the family that owns the company, yep. for its role in the crisis. The state has rejected a proposed settlement. The company's filed for bankruptcy, and now a judge has agreed to halt Connecticut's lawsuit along with almost 2,700 others. How do you think this plays out? 
We're going to continue to fight, and I think ultimately uh, we will get justice uh, from Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family for the damage that they have done. Uh, it's going to be a difficult, long road in litigation. Um, I I don't think that Purdue Pharma had a good faith basis um, to declare bankruptcy, uh, particularly because we're seeing them uh, attempt to pay huge multi-million dollar bonuses to their executives. And you shouldn't be able to pay big multi-million dollar bonuses if you're bankrupt, if you're broke. So they clearly have the wherewithal to do that. They have uh, a very profitable product in OxyContin that is still uh, on patent, you know, they have the exclusive right to to sell and market it, and it still plays an important role in pain management and in the healthcare system. So I think they're making money. I think the Sacklers have made billions upon billions of dollars. You mentioned that they're in my hometown, my backyard of Stamford, Connecticut. Many of the Sacklers live in Connecticut, and people often ask me, well, what does that mean that you're the home state AG? And I think what it means is that we, Connecticut, have a special responsibility and a special obligation to be aggressive and to hold them accountable. And I'm going after them. Based on your investigation, what have you found out about what the company knew about the opioid crisis and when they knew it? So they've known about it for some time. And I think what shocks me is knowing the risk of this very potent drug. And um, knowing that uh, people were prone to become addicted, they pushed even harder to maximize their profits, uh, you know, pushing ever more pills through unscrupulous healthcare providers. You know, we all have heard about the pill mills uh, and, and the doctors, they refer to these doctors as region zero doctors who were pumping out thousands and thousands of of pills to thousands and thousands of patients who didn't need them. And then when, you know, it hit the proverbial fan, um, they blamed victims and they blamed victims and their families and said, it's their fault. And um, said that at, at one point, uh, Richard Sackler said that the victims are the victimizers and that the abusers are responsible um, for this crisis. And and then they went so far as to say um, they peddled this theory known as pseudoscience or pseudo-addiction. They went as far to say that the reason why people get addicted is because they don't have enough access to opioids. And if they just had access to more drugs, they wouldn't go seeking uh, for drugs and they would not get addicted. It just doesn't, it boggles the mind that they would try to peddle that kind of deceitful and fraudulent, um, uh, those sorts of deceitful, deceitful and fraudulent ideas on on the general public, and and that's where attorneys general come in. You know, we have broad, uh, very significant authority uh, to go after people for fraud and for deceptive and unfair practices, and and we think they've been doing that for a long time. What would be a fair settlement in your view? A fair settlement provides justice to um, victims and their families and adequately funds addiction science treatment and prevention. And what they've put on the table doesn't get there. You know, they've essentially put, call it $3 billion with some, you know, potential 
opportunities to to get more money from them. But but it's essentially in that neighborhood. Any representation you've seen in the media that the offer is ten billion, twelve billion, that's just it's just not true. And I know that that what they've offered isn't enough. And I know that they helped to start this crisis. You know, they started this fire and they have an opportunity to try to make it right, to start to do something to help abate the crisis and to help victims. But instead, what they've done over the last decade or more is pour gasoline on this fire. And when they had an opportunity to sit down with us and and try to make it right, instead they said, "No, you know what? We're just we're going to sit back and we're going to watch it burn." And and that, you know, I think is 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 what is so utterly wrong about their approach and their efforts in bankruptcy, and and that's why we're demanding so much more. They have taken billions upon billions of dollars out of this company, and they did that after they knew they had a problem. You know, Purdue Pharma pled guilty to federal criminal charges in 2007, 2008. They knew then they had a problem, and and they knew then that they might get sued. And, and yet, knowing that, they pulled billions of dollars out of the company since then to try to defeat our claims and not have any money to pay the state's claims and the claims uh, of cities and towns and uh, victims. And that we think is fraudulent. We think they fraudulently fraudulently conveyed billions of dollars to themselves, and we're going to hold them accountable. How difficult a decision was it not to be part of this proposed settlement that some of the other jurisdictions are part of? Well, there is no settlement. There's a proposal. The CEO of Purdue Pharma has said the 23 states or so, the minority of states that support the deal uh, are not enough. And so they know they can't do a deal without us. You can't do a deal without Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts, California, the big states. And our coalition is a bipartisan coalition, Democrats and Republicans. It's a majority uh, of states. And we just don't think it's enough. They've got to do better. They've got to do more. And we're not there. Given the bankruptcy filing, is there a chance that Connecticut and the other states get nothing? We we don't see that as a reasonable probability. We uh, we think that the state's claims are very strong. We think that their culpability and their liability is obvious, and we're going to continue to litigate against them and pursue them until we get uh, as much justice as we can. And Aaron, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the numbers. What what dollar amount is enough? right? What's the right dollar amount? The answer to that is no dollar amount is enough to um, really give justice to the families, um, the thousand families in Connecticut that will lose somebody this year, uh, more than a thousand, and the more than a thousand families that lost somebody last year and going back year after year since this crisis started. There's not a big enough number that being said, um, it's not just about the money, right? There will be um, either a damages award or there could be um, some agreed upon number, but it's not just about the money. It's about justice. It's about holding people accountable for profiteering off of other people's misery. 
You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. Certainly, Purdue Pharma isn't alone for in playing a role in the opioid crisis. Are you looking at other targets we as are. well? We are. And I can't say too much about it, but there have been recent reports in the press about uh, the distributors, the three major distributors in this country of prescription drugs, Amerisource, Bergen, Cardinal, and McKesson. Um, these are companies that had a significant role in this crisis. Um, you know, there's been reporting about uh, pharmacy chains, uh, healthcare providers, um, even treatment centers. And, and the way I look at it is um, there's an addiction industry. And at various points throughout um, the stream of commerce, right, various links in the chain, people make money based on the sale of prescription drugs, and frankly, they make money off of addiction. And um, what we are doing, not just as a state, but in uh, coalition with our partners across the country and the other states and territories, we're taking on the entire addiction industry um, to hold wrongdoers accountable and to claw back billions of dollars to fund addiction science treatment and prevention. At the end of the day, that's what this is about. It's about abating this crisis and about making sure uh, as as well as we can, as much as we can, that um, that new addicts, um, uh, you know, don't find themselves in uh, this really unfortunate place because of the conduct of uh, a few manufacturers or distributors or any other bad actors in this industry. Staying on the topic of prescription drugs, last spring you filed a multi-state lawsuit against generic drug makers. What are they accused of doing wrong and what is at stake here? So um, the generic drug makers, uh, they're in the latest complaint there are more than there are around 20 major generic drug manufacturers. Um, the latest complaint has, I think, roughly 15 or so individual defendants uh, with respect to hundreds of drugs. Uh, basically, what's happening in the generic drug industry, uh, which accounts for 90% of our country's prescriptions on drugs that we use every day. Um, doxycycline is a drug that that I use. You may have seen that. Uh, there's a 60 Minutes piece about our lawsuit, and now the entire country knows the Attorney General of Connecticut has a skin condition called rosacea, for which I take uh, doxycycline. My doxycycline went up 8,000%. Uh, other drugs, heart drugs, blood pressure drugs, azithromycin, z which so many of us take and so many of us with young children, as as I have three little ones, um, I don't know how many times we've gone to pick up a Z-Pack from the local pharmacy. Uh, we see uh, and have evidence of brazen, uh, overt, utterly shameless price fixing of generic prescription drugs and unlawful dividing up of market share by the major generic drug manufacturers. So you don't have to be a lawyer to know that it is highly illegal under our nation's antitrust laws for competitors, for big companies to get together and collude on price. It's just wrong, right? You can't get in a room and say, okay, what are we going to charge for 
azithromycin. Let's not compete with each other. Let's just set the price at a level that makes us all money. That's illegal. It's also illegal to sit around a table and say, okay, you take this customer. I won't compete with you. I'll take the other customer. You won't compete with me. Let's just play nice in the sandbox and everybody gets their fair share. They literally use that language, quote unquote, let's play nice in the sandbox. Let's let's each get our fair share. They use this language in emails and text messages that we've seen. And, and what we've discovered is that the generic uh, drug industry and large segments of the generic drug industry are fixed. That that the the industry is fixed, and that this represents the largest corporate cartel in history. Is it at all surprising to you that you find language like that in emails and text messages? It it is surprising because a law as a lawyer, you know, having been in private practice for uh, almost twenty years, you don't expect to see a smoking gun like that, right? You don't expect to see people put that kind of wrongdoing in writing. But I think it speaks to how routine the lawbreaking is um, and appears to be in that industry, how people just seem to come in in the morning, turn on their computer, have a cup of coffee and break the law and then go to lunch and come back and do it again. And and people often ask you, well, how how do they think they're going to get away with it? Why do they do it? How do they think that they can possibly... Um, you know, get away with doing something so illegal? And I think the answer is they're going to break the law as long as they can afford to do so. And these are big companies. Um, You know, another company, Pfizer, uh, is buying Mylan. And Mylan is a major generic drug manufacturer. Mylan and Pfizer are both defendants in our cases. And uh, I think the Wall Street Journal asked Pfizer over the summer when they announced their acquisition of Mylan, Aren't you concerned about the Connecticut Attorney General's case against Mylan? You're buying this company. It's got a significant exposure uh, because of this price-fixing case. And Pfizer said, no, it's fine. We've taken a look at it. You know, we're not worried about it. What do you mean you're not worried about it? This is a huge exposure. We have documents, emails, witnesses, text messages, phone records, but they're just that big. And I think that there's an attitude that this is a routine and B, that they can break the law because they can afford to do so, you know, even if they have to pay a huge judgment. What's the status of the suit currently? We just amended our complaint and expanded it. And uh, we have recently won uh, an important motion to dismiss by the defendants. They tried to kick us out of court and they lost. So we're doing very well in this case. We have the best lawyers in our office uh, working on it now. I think all the lawyers in our office are the best lawyers in the office. But these two lawyers, uh, Michael and Joel Nielsen, are the best of the best, and they're doing a great job. You mentioned Joe Lieberman and Dick Blumenthal, who were certainly consumer crusaders when they, they sat in the office you occupy now. How much of the job is consumer protection work? So much of the job is consumer protection work. And frankly, opioids, generic drug price fixing, um, even though that has uh, those are the generic drug price fixing cases and antitrust case, these are all consumer protection efforts. And data privacy is consumer protection. But even apart from the big ticket cases, the work we do 
every day in helping people um, with their with their health insurers, for example, uh, and their health care providers and, and people who feel like they got a raw deal trying to get prescription drugs or trying to get a particular condition or ailment covered by their insurers. We work on that on that on those cases every single day in our office. We work with families who are the victims of scams. You've heard about the grandparent scam where somebody calls you on the phone and says, your granddaughter or grandson's in trouble. You know, go down to CVS and buy gift cards and send them to us. And and it sounds kind of unbelievable to some people that that this happens and that people get scammed in this way, but it happens every day. And it does in and I don't think that you know people that are victims are to blame. If you get a phone call and somebody says that your granddaughter is in trouble and they have a few facts that they picked up on the internet or they happen to have access to some uh, biographical facts about your granddaughter and and they tell you that she's in trouble, you'll do anything to help her. And if that means you go down to CVS and buy some gift cards and send them out to the wrongdoer or if you wire money, people do that because they want to save their loved ones. And frankly, my mom's been a victim of a scam, 5000 bucks, And she's, she's not proud of it. You've met my mom. She's a pretty tough lady. But, um, you know, you get people just right and when they're in a vulnerable place um it's it's not hard to take advantage of people and that's what these scammers know and they're often offshore these scammers which makes going after them very difficult uh we're doing a lot on robocalls we're doing a lot on pressuring industry to use technology to screen out robocalls uh so we do a, a lot of that work we do a lot of the this work around energy. Connecticut is part of an antitrust probe of Facebook. Yep. What are you hoping uh, comes from this? Facebook and Google. And what's really ironic is, I think for a long time in this country, we sort of took our uh, foot off the gas with respect to antitrust enforcement, trust busting, you know, that, that seemed uh, almost antiquated. Um, and I think People thought that uh, antitrust, robust antitrust enforcement was anti-growth and anti-business until Microsoft. And um, I think at that time, we figured out that Microsoft had become a monopoly, that it had monopoly power, that every computer operated on MS-DOS and everybody used Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel. And they had unlawfully tied the two things together that in order to use Microsoft Word, you had to buy Microsoft, or you had to use uh, MS-DOS, and consumers had no choice. And what's interesting is, if we hadn't taken on Microsoft as a country and used our antitrust laws to protect consumers, um, there would be no Google, and there would be no Facebook, because Microsoft would have been so dominant that those companies wouldn't have been small, fledgling startups at some point. But as often happens, now they've become the, the behemoths. And I don't, you don't have to travel very far on the internet to see how dominant Google is. And they're particularly dominant in the digital advertising space. I'm not just talking about Gmail and, and, and the Google search search engine, you know, we're talking about the way that ads are placed and information is um, distributed on the internet. They control so much of the machinery of the internet and 
the pipes basically that that all the information flows through and and so too facebook is so dominant in the social media space and and dominant in um online commerce and um uh, also in the exchange of ideas and all of that i think um with too much market power uh lends itself to abuse and that's what we're investigating whether they abuse their market power to the detriment of all of us. He is Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.